Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I want to thank you as always for listeners for um, sharing the podcast, for listening to the podcast, and for your reviews. And um, please keep sharing away. Uh, as always, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and the lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. And number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. And finally, number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and cult therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I wanna to welcome today's guest. Her name is Guru Kartarkar. She now goes by Rue. Uh, she was born into 3HO in Mexico City in 1997 to her parents. Guru Hans Karkalsa and Siri Simran Singh. A couple months after she was born, Rue and her sister, Paramatmakar, were brought to New Mexico by her parents to attend the summer solstice where she met YB, Yogi Bhajan, and received her spiritual name from him. 
Rue's parents were originally raised Catholic, but later converted to Sikhism and joined the 3HO community through her maternal grandmother, Hari Kar Kulsa, who first became a member of Babaji's ashram, the first 3HO ashram in Mexico City in 1972. Rue participated in summer solstices with her family for seven years straight. At age 11, her parents decided to send her to MPA so that she could practice and learn more about the Sikh religion. Her older sister was first sent away in 2007, and then Rue joined her a year after. They lived in India for three years straight and later returned back to Mexico as their parents no longer found the school appropriate and affordable. Rue now, has now been living in Ontario, Canada for 11 years. She is currently in the works of opening her own art business and will soon be attending college for so social service work. Through her own self-healing journey and research, she discovered she has dealt with racism and sexism as a Latina with indigenous ancestry, especially while being a part of a religious cult at a young age. You can connect more with her at her IG handle in the show notes. Um, our last episode, we had a student come forward that was speaking about MPA. And then um, after that, uh, you came forward. And I just want to just presence to listeners that um, there are a lot of people, a lot of young people that have come through this community over the years. And this is just barely scratching the surface of the stories that have been silenced. And so these intentions are very real. The, uh, the homophobia and the racism is very real and, it, and it's decades compacted. And it means a lot that, that you're listening listeners and that we're sharing and spreading the opportunity for us to crack that silence code. And so I just really appreciate the reach out, Rue. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, Guru Qatar, and I'm just kind of a little bit blown away by your bio because the the age <laughs> difference, right? So it's 20 years. You were born 20 years after me um, into the community yeah. in Mexico City because your parents became into the Dharma through Hari Karkalsa, who obviously was early influential um, in, in Mexico City. So I guess I just want to say that's like, I wanted to presence that like, wow. Like look at that over <laughs> insane, right? Yeah. 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 A lot of years. Um yeah, my mom uh told me that um when she went to the summer solstice, uh she was pregnant and I was um in her belly. <laughs> so I've been attending the summer camps um since I was in the womb, I guess. <laughs> and yeah, my grandmother was the one who introduced us um about like Sikhism, 3HO, Kundalini Yoga. Um, so it's been a lot of years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and your grandmother was a Kundalini Yoga teacher and a teacher trainer and, and these types of things in Mexico City. Is that correct? Uh, I, I believe so. Um, but I know my mother, um, she actually got uh, certification to be a Kundalini Yoga teacher, and she's actually uh, well known in Mexico City um, as mother. a yoga teacher. My mother, yes, got it. Okay. Very much so. <clears throat> um, where do you want to begin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
uh, you can just throw me any question and I'll be able to answer from there, I guess, whatever your people will be most interested in. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, again, I'm just going to kind of like speak out loud this timeline, right? So the grandmother, <laughs> Hari Kar calls, right? Hari Kar is, in, you know, is early ashram, the first Mexico City ashram called Babaji mm -hmm. Ashram, which I didn't know. Um, and then, you know, her direct connection with Yogi Bhajan, her daughter, and then her husband, right? Your parents join uh 3ho through that influence in whatever capacity and um you're born into 3ho just like me and I, so i guess i just want you to start there about like your story mm -hmm. of growing up in the dharma right and what that means from yeah. a specific context so that you can bring us to the point of the present day you know like give us a little background yeah. or if you want to focus on mpa it's like i don't know where you want to go but i know you have a lot to share yeah, I, I mean, I can start from my childhood, I guess. Um, I mean, it was, it was very, I had a very different childhood compared to, um, you know, people born in Mexico, because um, I don't know if a lot of people know, but Mexico is a very um, Catholic Christian um, country. Um, and being born as a Sikh, um, you know, I was seen as like, kind of like an alien um, because my family was so different from everybody else. I was different from my friends, my teachers, my parents, like friends and things like that. Um, when I was little, I had to wear um, kind of like whatever you have to wear when, um, when I used to be Sikh. Uh, so it was the Rishi and, you know, the dress and being covered and wearing white. Um, sometimes now you're wearing chitty das, wear right? You're wearing chitty yes. das, covering your legs. You're wearing <laughs> exactly. the full, full on, right? Okay. Exactly. Covering your so head with a turban. Even, not eating yes, in Mexico. That's so. a very big deal. Yes, exactly. So I used to follow like most customs. Um, and especially being vegetarian was very hard for me because, um, you know, in Mexico, there's plenty of foods uh, made with beef, chicken, um, and everywhere you go, it was so hard to find um, food to eat because again, like vegetarianism wasn't really a thing back in the day. Um, so, you know, I would go to school with my vegetarian meals and with my turban on and wearing white, and, you know, I, I would get tons of questions from everyone. And at the same time, you know, I, my official uh, legal name is Guru Pratar Kar. Um, meanwhile, all my other friends and whoever I knew had Mexican names of uh, Spanish uh, descent. And, you know, when you hear the name Guru, uh, you kind of think uh, like, oh, are you from like India or where's your name from? So. Um, a lot of the times, you know, at a very young age, I had to explain about my religion, which I feel like when I was younger, I didn't really understand myself, um, just because, you know, it, I was raised like that. Um, it's something that you can't, you're just born with, but you don't fully understand until you're much older what it means. Um, but I had to kind of always explain who I was when I was a young kid instead of just being myself and not having other people, you know, care so much about 
everything about me. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I also felt very um, alienated just because, again, I felt so different from other people. Um, except for the times when I used to go to the summer solstice. Um, that's when I would meet more people like me, like more children like me. And um, I had more of a sense of belonging. Um, but that only occurred when I was um, attending the summer solstice because once I went back to Mexico, then again, I would become an alien. <laughs> so it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I can really feel that. So it's like you get the camaraderie, you get the sense of belonging at that. And, and we know that when you're in the quote lifestyle, everything mm-hmm. revolves around the next event, right? So it's that next summer solstice, or it could be maybe like, <laughs> I don't know if you uh, attended events between them, like whether it was tantric events or other gatherings when people came into Mexico, but like when your teacher is a parent, when your parent is a teacher, life can revolve around the things that are dominant by the 3HO lifestyle, which in and of itself isn't you focused. It's the lifestyle focused. Yeah, very much so. Um, My mom, um, as I mentioned before, she is a kundalini yoga teacher. Um, she had her own business and she had classes in our home um, pretty much all the time. Um, she would host classes. So I was very much involved in the community. Um, we used to go to Gurdwara every Sunday. Um, and uh, I can't recall the name of the place, but there was one particular place that we would go to every Sunday and we would meet other people that were also part of 3HO in Mexico City. Um, But again, it was very much like the adult part of that. I I rarely saw children. Mm -hmm. Um, So the only time that I was able to connect with other kids my age was when I used to go to the summer solstice solstice, um, Mm -hmm. because I used to go to the children's camp. Um, I have Mm -hmm. good memories from there, but... um, Again, only those memories um, I could say are from there and not so much from when I used to go back to Mexico City. Um, At least, you know, my friends were understanding and, you know, they kind of just didn't really care if I was a little bit different. But, um, yeah, it was just a lot of um, limitations, I guess, that I had when I was a kid. Um, You know, not being able to wear... uh, regular clothing all the time um having to have long hair and that it should always be covered um again not eating any meat things like that and um going to Dora every sunday um praying a lot um and i even remember like for every meal that we used to eat we used to say a little prayer um I mean, it's just a lot of habits like that, that um, in the car, in the car as well, every single time. Yeah. When we used to go out we say a little prayer, I swear for like every single thing that we did, we used to just say a little prayer. And I, <laughs> it's funny how I like, I just did it when I was a kid. Um, my mom told me once too, that uh, my first words were, um, a part of the scripture um, from the Nitnam. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, 
and and my mom my mother was so proud of it uh she was so proud of me because she's like oh my god you know she's fully Sikh she's so into the religion like she's just born and her first words were a religious um sentence <laughs> and um I, I just again like I I I understand now that you know I I don't <laughs> I mean nowadays I I don't agree with the way that I was being raised but um it's very interesting how much I was involved in that to the point that you know I learned how to say those words um although they were not in Spanish not in English they were um Punjabi and I still learn because that's that's what I was used to right I, I was used to listening to um all those things when I was in house so I just um learned it yeah yeah, I mean, you're really you're pointing out you're pointing out like the the alienness of of your life, right? And how mm-hmm. how all of that that kind of the ethos of it was prayer and it was consciousness and it was you know for all these like good lifestyle practices, but the reality of your lived experience was you're this object and you also don't get to participate in everyday life things, which you know. I think our parents thought were a great thing, right? There's so many right. rationales for why, quote, that's a great thing, especially if you're following the YB protocol. But the the real like mental and emotional and psychological abuse of that on a child is real. And I think that's what you're feeling beneath it all. And, and I just want to acknowledge that, like the rage of, of not being able to have choices and choices that are probably better for you that your own body can feel and yet you're restricted from in the name of fucking God. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I felt like uh, they were choosing my personality or they were choosing the way that I should look, how I should behave, how I should speak, mm. what I should eat consume whether that's you know food or what i'm watching yeah what <laughs> so, you listen to having mantras play I, all the time is yes. having mantras is the most best frequency of our own you know of forever and <laughs> always you know so mm. i i didn't have that much of like freedom i guess to mm. choose for myself um and obviously, you know, that affects people when they're older because you have to kind of learn to choose the things that you want. And, you know, people say it's easy. You know, you want something, you go get it. But when you are raised in an environment like that, where you're not allowed to choose what you want, you have to learn that behavior and you have to change those habits. But um, mm. that's something that I'm still dealing with till this day um and you know going back to um when I was a kid you know I I went to summer social for seven years and then finally my parents decided that they wanted me to go to India um at the age of 11 years old um that was something that I yeah, <laughs> I want you to go right into 11, but hold on. I got to presence a couple things you just said. We got, we got to slow yeah. this down. We got to slow this down. For sure. Um, two things. 
the fact that you sp spoke to the, the first words you spoke were, I'm guessing mantra, right? So it's Punjabi or Gurumukhi, mm -hmm. right? Guru, so if it's, yeah. if it's from the, if from, from depending, right? Um, but anyways, to presence that, to say that out loud, like that that's the permeating environment you came into. If that's the first words, right? You're learning what you're repeating in the environment, not Spanish as you spoke, right? Not English, mm. but these mantras, right? These sound currents, which again, yeah. your mom is all proud of, but let's really feel what, what you're talking about here. You're talking about how, you know, you, we grow up in an environment as children of environments like this without choice. Our parents are shaping us. They're not being custodians of children that have natural inclinations and natural expressions and natural needs and natural wants. And as parents, you know, we're attuned to support children, healthy development, right? But instead, mm -hmm. those choices are molded. And so you're talking about the impact of not being able to have early choices and how we model where, what we can get affection and attention from. So you got praise for speaking yada, yada, right? From the, right? right. And then therefore you learn that if you do these practices, which I'm only saying out loud because I've recognized this in me, I learned to perform <laughs> yoga for love right? Mm -hmm. For connection, for food, mm -hmm. for choice, for anything. And that's heavy because it does impact us later. It's the choice it impacts us so hard, but I never saw that. I mean, I'm so happy, you know, this, and because all this has come out, <laughs> we're talking about this, but it's right. legal and it's the impact of children born in cults. This is, this is why getting a cult therapist folks, is it necessary and important for all of us? Because we can't see ourselves when we're born into something and it's just normal. There's some part of you that knows that shit ain't normal, but <laughs> compared to what, and what question do you ask? So Rue, when you said, it seems easy to make a choice, like, what do I want? Let's go have it. Oh my God. That is so, I'm so with you because to even feel what I flip and want mm -hmm. is so smushed and compact. And sometimes I can't even identify it, much less all the stages of what comes afterward to go get the thing I want, right? To have it, to know I'm worth it, to know it's okay that I don't have to do some performance to get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So choices are not easy. Isn't it as simple as making a choice of what do I want to eat? Mm -hmm. Very much so, yeah. It's so important you bring this because as you talk about your own swirl of the things, how it still shows up for you today, it's been permeating through my life, my whole existence. And I wouldn't have known to identify it until we've been having this conversation in the last three years about the fact that we didn't grow up in a spiritual community. We grew up in a religious cult. Mm -hmm. And so our words do matter. And what we call something <laughs> yeah matters, right yeah yeah and you know what it's you know i i feel like you know my parents meant well you know they weren't they didn't think it would affect me this much in the future um because you know at the end of the day they wanted the best for me but there's definitely consequences too um kind of choosing for your children um, and not letting them um, make choices for themselves. 
Um, and I also remember even when I was a kid, um, my parents would have conversations about um, marriage and how they wanted me to have an arranged marriage. And we would go to Gurdwara and we would go to all these community events. And I remember my mom being like, hey, if you see that guy over there, um, you know, if you're interested, we can arrange something. And it's someone that I've, you know, I've, I've just seen at that point in time. Like, I don't know this person. <laughs> I've never met them. But I mean, obviously my parents know. And I also remember this guy being like much older than me. Um, and I was underage. And already my parents were trying to make decisions for me about my future. Um, and very important decisions in life, such as marriage. Um, and, you know, I was young and I'm like, you know what, you know, my parents know best, so why not? Like, if it, it must be done, then I guess it must be done. And if that would have happened in real life, um, being part of an arranged marriage, you know, I think it would have destroyed me <laughs> at this point in time, just because of who I am today. Um, but it's scary. It's just scary to think about how, you know, when other people are in charge of your life, um, you can live a very sad life and a very um, unfulfilling life um, if you can't control what you want, who you are, and things like that. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, Thank God now that I realize these things. So, yeah, and I mean, you speak yeah. to you know your parents controlling those choices, <laughs> but on another level, their influence of their choices was already being influenced, right? They they're exactly. under coercive. Mm -hmm. Your parents are under coercive control in a multi generational way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting to. Um, yeah, just to have your reflection on what it means to like have your choices controlled and the other life you could have led, because it sounds like you were very much into the lifestyle, like they were suggesting that and you were kind of into it. It was all, it wouldn't be till many years later that you kind of woke up and realized this wasn't for you. Exactly. Um, it was okay. only till after MPA. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. So go ahead and bring us to 11. So you go into Solstice and at 11, your mom... <laughs> First of all, I just want to also say the fact that your mom was like pointing out an older man and talking about arranged marriage and just the normalcy of this. I want real listeners to really hear this. We're talking about, you know, in in the 90s, 2000s, that, you know, a practice that we all did in the 70s and 80s is carrying on in ways that is called an ethos. That's what that is, right? Through the teachers, there's a teacher training dissemination around the ethos of what the lifestyle is. And that's including arranged marriages. It's, it's a part of it. And arranged marriages to older men. This is a part of the formula as we're noticing. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so my parents decided to send me India at 11 years old um I don't think I had much of a choice <laughs> because again they truly wanted me to be part of 
um, the community through Cho. My mom wanted me to kind of do the same thing that she was doing um, in terms of Kundalini yoga. So she wanted me to become an instructor. Um, so Are you into the practice? Did you like it? I <laughs> then it, I didn't like. I mean, okay. To be honest, I was very religious when I was a kid, um, and I liked the idea of believing in a God and um, practicing um, doing my prayers. I was super religious as a child. Um, so the idea of going to India was kind of exciting for me, but at the same time, you know, it was scary because um, I did not speak English, like not even a single word of English. Um, my first language was Spanish and I was just going to be surrounded by kids that spoke English, barely any people that spoke Spanish, maybe like a group of four, but they were much older kids. Um, so my, my sister first went to school um, and they kind of tested how the school was with my sister. And then after a year, they were like, okay, we're gonna send um, the younger one. So another thing too, is that um, it was kind of like a superstitious thing to send me at 11 years old because um, you know a lot of people kind of, um, I guess, uh, like, you know how the number 11 is? 7, 11. Um, 7, 11. Uh-huh. It's little. Uh, yeah, exactly. 108 the, is the number one. of the girl. Everybody loves the 108. Yeah. So, you know, they. that's one of the reasons why they also sent me 11 years old. It was because of the number. Um, they're very much into numerology. numerology. <laughs> yes. So they thought, you know, this is the year. This is the year to send um, our daughter. So my sister was sent at 11 years old. And then I was sent at 11 years old. I guess for good luck or something. <laughs> um, so I got sent. Um, when I was at the airport, you know, at first I was excited. Um, I was traveling with my sister. But I actually, uh, when I said bye to my mom, I had a full-on panic attack. Um, at the airport. And I don't think my parents realized because it was after I said bye to them, but I had a full on panic attack. Um, I felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, and it literally felt like I was dying, <laughs> but it only lasted for a minute or two. No one realized, by the way, um, the staff members, there were, there were at least two staff members and they were too busy handling the tickets or whatever it was at the moment. But um, I had a full-on panic attack. And I think it was because, again, uh, being separated from my parents, um, going to the other side of the world, it finally, like, kicked in. Um, so I, I, I had it, and then I just had to jump in the airplane. There was nothing else that I could do. At that age, I didn't even know what a panic attack was or anxiety or anything like that. So right. to me, I was just like, I'm, I guess I'm sick or something. But I arrived in India and again, I spoke no English. So I used to be um, next to my sister all the time. Um, and it was, it was so bizarre to be able to still 
communicate with people without speaking the language because um, all the other kids were very friendly. Um, but I didn't understand anything they said. And to me, it's kind of messed up because, you know, if I needed something, I could only rely on my sister. And I could not tell anybody else because everyone spoke English. And, you know, I'm a kid. I'm 11 years old. I don't know anyone. I don't know any adult. I don't, I barely, I'm just learning their names. And, you know, my sister is not going to be around all the time. You know, sometimes she goes out with like friends or she's doing whatever she's doing. And I was a lonely kid, 11 years old. Um, I was a quiet kid as well. So even if I spoke the language, you know, I'm, I, it's not like I would approach anyone and be like, hi, hello. I was super shy, quiet kid, did not speak the language. If I needed anything, I was screwed. <laughs> like I was wow. toast. And it wasn't until maybe six months after that I kind of knew how to speak um, broken English. Um, and I was able to kind of ask for things. So it was, back then I still couldn't ask for what I wanted. Um, and I think it was in grade six, um, I hit puberty and, um, I, I got my period one day and back then, um, I was speaking a little bit more English, but at the same time, um, I didn't know what that meant. Um, no one taught me about my body. Um, no one was there to teach me about what was happening to my body. And then when I got my period, um, I told one of my girlfriends and uh, she was much older than me, maybe like two or three years older than me. And she found out and then she was the one who had to kind of explain to me what it was. And again, like it was, she was only like 15 years old. And uh, she was the one who was teaching me what was going on. And the staff members, I, I mean, I just remember that they were barely around. Um, and I kind of have to experience that by myself. Um, and wow. it was, yeah, it was really tough. <laughs> you went over mm -hmm. there in like 2008, it sounds like. Yes. 2008 yeah wow okay um what else what else at mpa um to be honest i have i have many stories but um they there were a lot of things that um i realize now that i'm older that happened to me um i think i want to talk more about the racism that i <laughs> experience at school um because uh you know i went like i said i i am i'm latina and i do have indigenous um descent and when i went to school um i my english was not so good um i was just learning how to speak the language and i've had people you know make fun of me uh for the way that i spoke um, but on top of that, um, 
you know, it was very much the older guys who would find any way to make fun of me or make fun of uh, my group of friends that were around the same age as I was. And I remember one day um, I brought a little sombrero from Mexico that my parents bought me. And uh, it, was, it was an item that, you know, it was really important to me because it just reminded me of home. Um, and I remember I brought it outside and there was this one guy and he was white and he was, I believe, four years older than me. So I was, I think, 12 and he was around 16. Um, and he saw my hat, my little sombrero, and he took it away from me. He put it on his head and he started saying, um, he, he called me a slur, um, the B word. So um, he, he would call me a, a beaner and he would go around, he went around. Um, and this is like, a very derogatory word for, for people of Latin descent, right? Or Latina, or, it, right? Or Mexican it, descent, right? It's, it's especially, like the N-word of Black people, right? It would be like an equivalent, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's, it's a slurred word for Mexicans. Okay. Um, it, it, I think it comes from like farmers who used to uh, pick beans. Beans, ah, oh, okay. Thank uh -huh. you for the context. So, Just for yeah, so... <laughs> Um, and that's something that they would, uh, people Just call Mexicans. Mm. Exactly. So he went around the school just saying that word, using my hat. And after that, he stole it from me. So he never gave me, he gave it back to me. You know, I kept saying, give it back, give it back. But, you know, I'm, I'm just kid. a little girl. So he doesn't care. He wouldn't care <laughs> what I was saying. My friends were there. And no one did anything um i kind of just had to sit down and be like okay i i guess it is what it is can't do anything i'm just a young girl um but i would also the same guy and like his friends would always say like all kinds of slurs um they would say the n-word lots of times um and and not just racially, but also um, they would say the, like the F word against like uh, homosexual people and things like that. Um, and they would say it to me as well or mm. to anybody. Um, and, uh, and you're just talking about older boys would do this. Yes, it was always the older boys who would um, say these things, but specifically a group of older white men. Older white um, And another example would be, um, there was also another group of white women that were much older than me. Uh, most of them I think are from LA or New York. And um, I, I noticed that you know a lot of kids display bad behavior but when it came to them displaying bad behavior they wouldn't get equally punished for what they did so um 
uh, there were times when um, these people, I would later find out that, you know, they did something bad, like drink alcohol um, in school grounds, which was absolutely not allowed. Um, and, you know, one night an incident happened and I later found out that they were drinking and they got drunk and, you know, they were underage. Um, but uh, nothing much happened to them. Um, it turns out that they actually took care of them when that happened. But, you know, I never heard that they didn't get punished. But when it came to people like me or my sister, that we would do something small, like having a relationship with a guy, um, then we would have more serious uh, punishment. Um, my sister actually got expelled from the school for having a relationship with a guy. That was also in the school? That was also in the school with another student. Um, and they both got expelled, I assume? They both got expelled. Interesting. But and this no relationship having... thing is so, is so 3HO. That's just kind of again, <laughs> prefacing, prefacing the, um, uh, I mean, obviously you can listen to any episode folks, but just prefacing the arranged marriage, just the amount of kind of like, um, shaming that goes with any sort of affection towards the opposite sex, um, much less an actual loving, caring relationship that might be supportive for, yeah, so my sister had a relationship um, with this guy, but um, they weren't caught doing anything. I mean, obviously, like they—they they just were dating. It's they not my business. Doing it's not my business. It's, okay. I mean, perhaps they were. I, it's not my business, but it's not your um, uh, The fact that they got. We expelled doing that and then versus those people who, who who did something that could be considered equally as bad um and they they didn't get anything i mean potentially they got standing um which is um they put students to stand um for a long period of time um that would happen a lot if um kids wouldn't follow the rules we would get punished like that as a collective, um, you would all have to go a, stand. Yeah. So a whole mm -hmm. class would have to go or the whole school. Or a whole group. But at the same time, talking about um, that type of punishment, um, there was a time when something was stolen in the dorm and they made all of the girls um, do physical exercise until one uh, a person spoke out and said that they stole. Um, they made us do chair pose uh, inside like a giant room and we couldn't, um, I guess, release that position until someone spoke out. And the people who were in charge of that punishment weren't staff members, they were actually the girls that were part of that group, the, the white woman. They were the one, the students were in charge of handling that punishment. And I had a wow. friend from the same grade who 
who was um, sick at the moment uh, with parasites and she had stomach issues and she was throwing up while that was happening and they wouldn't let her um, rest or kind of not be involved in that punishment. She still had to do it regardless. But the students, those students were in charge of that, which is why were these white women students in charge of that repercussion? Why weren't they a part of it if if they could have been the ones who stole it too? So they were a part of it as well, but they they were in charge, so they could leave if they wanted to. You know, they made it seem like they were part of a group, but really they have privileges um, because these people were really good friends with the staff members. So they they had certain privileges. Um, and meanwhile, everyone else had to listen to them, had to follow them, whatever they said. Um, and Rue, I don't know what the student demographic makeup is. Is it mostly white people, white students? Is it students that are all different demographics? And maybe you can context that for us so that we can get a sense of like, it's you and your sister, but, but are there others from other countries? Are there others yeah. that are in this minority too? Or is it, you know, I'm just trying to get a feel for it at this. Um, I know so, what it was in the earlier decades uh -huh. in terms of mostly white, but as people start recruiting around the world through Mexico and other places, I don't necessarily know what's true. Um, for sure, there were other people from different cultures. Um, uh, I think there were maybe like seven Mexican students. Um, but the vast majority were white. All were the, most of our staff members were white as well. And of that kind of, most of the staff members were white and most of the staff members were American. Is that correct too? Yes. Um, uh, and, yeah. And how many of the student body say had those kind of privileges because they were so close? And, and let's kind of give some context to what that means to be so close. If you think about the generations of American kids who then birthed kids, who then birthed kids and some of the staff member knows some of those kids because they're best friends with with the parents of those kids that are over there. And I'm only making this up in terms of trying to understand the web of what that really close friends could actually be like, right? Within that white people mm -hmm. network, right? Within that mm -hmm. white people network. And I'm curious if that was what the friends were or if there's a different dynamic. So a lot of the white children um, were from LA and New York, like I said, and okay. they, the staff member kind of came from the same community as them, so from LA. So of course they know each other. I'm pretty sure they've been to the same ashrams, same community, same streets, same cities. So they all kind of knew each other. Um, and again, majority of them if not all were white americans from la yes. <laughs> so so no yeah, one white women network privileges exactly the <laughs> built-in privilege and the multi-generational privilege and let's just throw in entitlement right the entitlement that kind of mm -hmm. comes that seeps in with that that privilege of of we know how this is done. Like we're from the LA ashram. We're from the New York ashram. We're part of this community. And just the, 
we know the built-in hierarchy um, that's within 3HO in and of itself. And then adding this, you're identifying the white males, the white women, and the dynamic mm-hmm. of that level of privilege, um, exceptionalism, entitlement that it sounds like you really you really experienced. And that's built into the 3HO hierarchy, even without the racial, there's still that dynamic. And then you're adding the other element where it's like, no, these are white women and they're the ones bringing this punishment. So there's this, and we haven't heard enough of this. So I'm just going to go ahead and stop and let you keep going. (laughs) It's okay. Um, Yeah. And another, I was going to bring up something else, um, but there was one time when one of the higher ups um, staff members, um, you know, he was surrounded by, you know, white kids, you know, the, the, the whole group was there. And I remember um, uh, he said that me and my sister uh, look like Oompa Loompas because our skin was yellow. So, um, and, you know, he said that and no one said anything about it. No one corrected him. No one said, you know, you can't say those things. Um, mm. In fact, you know, it, things like that are kind of just laughed at. They're encouraged. And, but really, it, it was a racist thing to say. <laughs> um, being racist, compared to, right. Folks, that's being racist. compared to this character, uh, a, a movie character that, again, like, why are you a character based off my skin color um and let's pause and again, say, it's a joke <laughs> exactly they're joking right and people think that it's joking and then there's this community ethos around just laughing and everybody just kind of laughs these things off and this has gone on for generations so that's why i'm pausing to really like land this there are plenty of people that you know racial slurs have been spun all over the place and it's laughed away as if it quote doesn't mean anything but folks it does it does yeah and mm-hmm. you're talking about being compared to umpalumpas which again if you look at the racist history of umpalumpas you actually can realize that that was actually historically also very very racist before it yeah. got turned into <laughs> fake imaginary characters called umpalumpas so just for the record folks, yeah if you want to wonder why the things that come out of your mouth are absolutely rooted in racism, and perhaps you've been taught that it's a joke, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sorry. I mean, it's when people say things like that to me, like, and especially as a kid, you know, I, it, it affects my, my, the way that I see myself. Um, I feel ugly if someone calls me that. I feel like my my there's something wrong with my skin color. There's something wrong with the way that I look. Uh, it's not okay because to them, you know, if you want to be beautiful, if you want to be worth it, you have to be white. You have to be pale. And if you don't want to be made fun of, if you want to belong to our group, you can look like the way you look. And that's what it meant to me when when he said like something like that (laughs) Mm. yeah and you start self-hating you start doubting yourself you know am I worth being respected am I worth being loved can I have friends 
you know, and it, it again, that's something that's going to affect you for the rest of your life, the way that people see you and judge you for the way that you look and simple things as your skin color. And it's not yeah. okay because I was a kid. I was a kid as well. So I was being bullied by an adult, which it's nonsense if you think totally about it. Totally wrong. Right, exactly. It's so <laughs> convoluted. Um, it's so convoluted also that the racial slurs can get spewed out. The collective, nobody says anything. <laughs> so it's just like embedded, right? It's embedded of, oh, wow, this is definitely not safe. Nobody here is safe, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I guess the last thing that I want to bring up is um, when I think in the earlier years, um, I, I used to get bullied at school. But um, my friends used to get bullied all the time as well. It was always kind of like my group of people of the same age. Um, that bullied? That, that bullied and used to get bullied. Um, but those type of people when, you know, would always make jokes about me and things like that. And I would try to ignore it and not care. And when I was in grade, um, this was grade eight, um so it was my last year in mpa um so you were there for sixth I, seventh and eighth grade yes so six wow. seven and eight and i just want to say and, what formative uh -huh. years those are too it's just like oh i'm so sorry i'm just reaching through just to hug you because these are just such as you're talking about like self-image <laughs> formative years and that's yeah very, very traumatic for a young person to to not have yeah. any networks of safety belonging connection um home uh -huh. wasn't like that here anyway Woo. yeah um it's good thing that you point that out because um I went to therapy for a bit of time and uh I told my therapist that you know say that again yeah I'm sorry I need you <laughs> I need you to say that again because you kind of cut out so go ahead and say that again did you say oh, you, you started okay. going to a therapist yeah um I went uh I went to a therapist for a, a bit of time um, and I told my therapist how I went to India and I was there for three years and he asked me, oh, how old were you? And I, when I told him I was 11 years old, he like freaked out. <laughs> um, he was like, oh, like, why were you sent that young? Like, is there a good reason? He couldn't believe it. And, you know, I told him like, you know, my parents are religious. They wanted me to learn about the religion. And he just found it completely unacceptable because... He was like, at 11 years old, your brain is still developing. Um, you're going to hit puberty. You have to, you're learning so many things about yourself and you're growing. You're still growing mentally, physically, and to not have, to not emotionally, to not have the resources to fully grow as a healthy adult and your parents not being there, um, it's going to affect you. And potentially has affected you and your development. Um, and I didn't understand that until now that again, I went to therapy and he told me that. Um, so I had very few people to talk to and learn things. Um, the adults were never around. Um, I always had to rely on whatever my friends said because I was always with my friends or with other kids and the adults. We're barely there. 
necessarily. <laughs> um, but going back to uh, me being grade eight, um, so I was bullied and, you know, the older kids um, didn't like me, um, especially the, that group of um, white kids that were much older than me. They didn't like me. But then I ended up um, becoming really good friends with this guy who was white. Um, and he was two years older than me. And we kind of had um, a bit of a relationship. And it wasn't until then that I started having a relationship with him that the same people that were bullying me started treating me nicely. There you go. So, and that it was such a quick shift because before the same people that would call me names that would say like, you know, things about me and would say, oh, I hate her. Like I hate her group. It wasn't until I started hanging out with another white kid that was part of the same group that they saw worth in talking to me in knowing you as a person as a human and knowing me knowing who I was um respecting me and all those things it wasn't until then that things changed yeah and you know I was always like I I was wondering why that happened and obviously now I realize (laughs) that I was you know accepted once I was associated with a white male from the same group yeah that within their network right (laughs) let's just kind of qualify that within their network because it's you know it's really like the haves and have nots within the 3ho scene is really a real thing right folks and so to think about the multi-generational white kids that were there or white adults who were the the adults right the staff who were actually just probably kids who then grew up in the Dharma and got put into these positions and however, and I also want to pause and reference, you know, to go back and listen to Jimena Sailing's uh, interview, which was one of the earliest three uh, podcasts that we're talking about. And she brings up a real similar thing, but in a different context, she's talking about how the Aquarian Academy, when she started going through the Aquarian Academy, there would be young people like me not not me, but say young white kids that grew up in America that became Kundalini yoga teachers. And we could excel and move through the Aquarian Academy faster because we knew senior teachers that were in particular positions that could help us move through, right? But she kept getting passed and passed and passed and passed because she wasn't in that good old network. So you're speaking to what's not being said, right? It's one thing to kind of know the people within the Dharma. And and we all know that that happens to many of us with white skin, but we're adding the element that's a much bigger, important one that's always been there and never been spoken to properly. And how your association with this white male who happened to be in this group of the clique of the people who didn't like you, suddenly that dissipates and dissolves because now you're acceptable? Right. Gulp. Mm. Right. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. for all you well-meaning white people that are teaching Kundalini yoga and using language like if you can't see God in all, you can't see God at all. And, you know, chanting mantras like we are the people, the people of love. Let us people love today. 
you know, what adds the added metallic heaviness of what Rue is sharing here in terms of the, the, the racial uh, exclusion and the abuse, the really horrible abuse based on her skin and who she is that does, isn't this, this whitewashed extra white version of what 3HO is supposed to be, the perfect, you know, white woman, yogi. It's disgusting, right? It, it's, it's, it's horrible. And it's so deeply embedded in, in the culture that is 3HO, the purity, the, you know, the whiteness. And this, and it comes across as well-meaning, well but it's embedded within, within this idea of consciousness. And yet you're being racist, right? You're, you're blatantly having a persona that's exclusionary, abusive, and racist. It's not well-meaning at all. And it's not conscious mm -hmm. at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's so many of us. And I'm just going to say that out loud too. It's because it's so embedded in the 3HO identity of healthy, happy, holy. It's so embedded into this purity, you know, wearing all white, speaking, you know, playing the mantras, having a heart consciousness, neutrality, you know, but all of these are just, you know, spiritual bypassing words of not looking at the horrible, abusive, racist, sexist, and other types of abusive built into it, right? Built into our sense of identity. It's in the fabric of our own identities as better, as more pure, as the Kulsa. I mean, that's horrible. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. So you start having this relationship. You had mentioned your sister had had a relationship. Was was she with a was she in a relationship with a white man as well? No, she was um, dating uh, other people of color, okay. uh, just, darker I, skin too. And thank you. I just wanted to qualify that because they both did get expelled. So it did make me wonder whether or not if the other person was <laughs> white, whether or not they wouldn't have gotten expelled. No, but I, um, I mean, I, I want to talk now about um, other things that other types of discrimination that I experienced myself, please. Um, because it's, it's not just, you know, um, issues with the way that you look or skin color, things like that. Um, but also the fact that um, they treated women and males uh, differently. Um, I've, I've seen guys my age, um, like when I was in grade seven, um, and I, I, I heard of them um, doing inappropriate things um, and uh, showing bad behavior. And one of them was, yeah, go ahead. Uh, one of them was, um, they actually um, smoked inside the dorm. Um, for some reason, they got a handle of uh, cigarettes and they smoked them in the bathroom. Um, and 
they were about to expel them, but then for some reason they changed their mind and they were like, nope, we're not gonna expel you even though you smoked a cigarette and were smoking inside a dorm. And again, going back to my sister who got expelled for having a relationship, I'm like, why didn't they get expelled? I don't understand why you're treating the situation differently if you think that it's just as bad because you know they always say like you shouldn't do drugs you can't drink like absolutely forbidden to do that in school grounds um but now you're allowing it because you those guys did not get punished mm. but if you had a relationship with a guy then that was seen as even worse than smoking drinking consuming drugs um and it was it was very much so that you know they they thought that women had to remain pure the conversations were always about that um when i was in that sort of relationship with a guy uh, when i was in grade eight um i've had i i was always um taken aside and then uh one of the staff members who was always a male um they would talk to me and be like hey what's going on in that relationship first of all why do you care <laughs> why are you talking to me <laughs> you're not you're not my mom or my dad like you're not you're not my parents my parents are the only ones who are allowed to know and what makes you think that I trust you to tell you that, you know? But they were always like, oh, I need to know what's going on because, you know, obviously, like, you, you can't have, like, sexual sexual relationships because, you know, women are supposed to stay here. Um, the conversations were always about, you know, sex after marriage. Your body belongs to God. You know, you can't be a sexual being um, instead of, you know, telling me, you know, if, if you have sexual relationships, you know, you have to be safe, um, these are the consequences, like to be pregnant, and, you know, that's a very large, uh, important life decision. Instead of having those types of conversations about uh, education, um, what it is to have sex, what it is to have relationships, what it is to um, know your body. It was very much, you know, you just have to stay here as a woman. Um, you cannot be a sexual being. <laughs> You're not allowed to be a sexual being. You're not allowed to even understand or or kind of fall into like temptations or things like that. Um, but it, it it was very much like the woman has to know, and the male, the guy is okay. Like he he can go on. We just have a little talk with him, just like, you know, a little joke aside, but it was so strict for the woman to know that they cannot do those things. So there was um, a quite a difference in you getting talked to versus him getting talked to? Yeah. Like it, was, it was quite a difference in terms of what actually took place. And on top of that, if anybody knew that you were in a relationship, sometimes um, you would get bullied and they would call you a whore and the guys would not get called anything the guys would just you know it's like oh wow you're, you're getting it 
or you know like what is what is it like or you know like curious but when it comes to the ladies you know i've i've heard of other women being called whores for having a relationship with a guy i've been called a whore myself um and this is all within yeah. the group of MPA students. Like this is amongst yes. kind of the group of MPA. If there's a student body, this is kind of the mm-hmm. atmosphere is what you're describing. Yeah. And it's, it was mainly the, uh, the older guys, the older, older guys were the ones who would call a woman horse. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and no staff, no things. staff speaking anything. Would the staff support it, not support it, do anything? No, the staff weren't even there to, to listen. Um, it usually happened behind doors or it happened at school when um, it was just the teachers. The teachers wouldn't barely, um, they, they would just mind their own business. Uh, they would try not to intervene. And the staff members were, I mean, I don't know where they were. And there was just nowhere to be found. And it was, between the students who um, display that type of behavior of a lot of slut shaming um just body shaming in general um and on top of that you know on top of being called a whore um they they would still make a lot of inappropriate sexual jokes Mm. towards us um the older men so just inappropriate sexual jokes like you know oh I want to fuck this girl I want to have sex with this girl or oh my god her boobs are so big or or just stupid things like that around the same woman that you are body shaming and slut shaming (laughs) and no one would teach these guys about what that meant and that it was bad to say those things but they would just keep saying it. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I didn't even know what a whore meant when I was that age because I I was 12, 13. I don't, again, I don't know anything about sex. I don't know anything about body parts. I had no one. Country. I'm in a foreign country. I barely speak the language. I I don't know what's happening to my body. I don't know what these relationships mean between me and a guy or whoever I decide to like. Let alone if I were to um, like someone of the same sex, I wouldn't know because no one spoke about those things. It was taboo. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. the body shaming the slut shaming the horse shaming to not even know what that word is and to, to have that just be permeating and the long history of it in this culture uh, how much mm-hmm. is just really embedded and and caked into our psyches as 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 if it's normal and folks it's just not it's not normal to like like a boy and be called a slut you know to want to wear lipstick and be called a slut to to have any sort of sexual expression out of your body and be called a whore not there's nothing normal about it it's not a it's not it's not well yeah thank you for speaking to this mm-hmm. so it was i i mean back in the day like i did not I did not understand anything at all. <laughs> um, and 
it wasn't until now that I realized that, you know, wow, like I was, I was treated like crap by, by everyone, by staff members, by students. Um, and the students didn't know better because no one was teaching them um, anything like that. It was, it was very much so like you just learn about the religion. You learn what Sikhism is. You learn yoga. You learn prayers. You learn how to be a Sikh. But nothing else mattered. That's the curriculum? <laughs> really? Very much so. How, come, how um, do mean, they say it's Cambridge <laughs> educated when what they're doing is teaching yoga and, and Sikhism? Yeah, like you would have regular school um you know science history things like that but it was it was very basic um education um that i mean i don't think it was even um i mean i've heard that it wasn't enough for other people to go to school um it was hard even for me to go back to mexico and um be part of uh the school system there um they asked me for a lot of subjects that I just didn't cover and even they, I think they tested me once for math and I didn't know anything um I did it I I barely um asked the exam that was required to attend the school and it was just um a public school it wasn't even a private school or anything and this is um, around 2012-ish, let's say, that you're trying to test back in Mexico City, right? In, to, to, to the yeah, so, yeah, so in Mexico, I mean, it was easier to get involved in a, in a school, but I had a lot of cultural shock when I came back. I so I wasn't imagine. able to, I wasn't able to fully, like, um, submerge my, myself in, um, or be part of uh, a school or any community in Mexico really because I was just completely different and uh, when I moved to Canada they um, they tested me for different subjects and I couldn't answer anything um, they tested me for science and math um, to go to a regular public school and I barely answered because I did not know I didn't get the education so they told me that um I had to be kind of like in the lowest class. Um, and it, it was hard to get involved in a, in a Canadian school after. Yeah, to assimilate back into regular life, so to speak. Um, so your time yeah. at MPA, you're, you're doing so much yoga and, and other exercise. And then um, Gurdwara, like you're really learning things about the Sikh lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even then, um, when I came back, you know, my mom had a lot of expectations about what I needed to learn. And she really wanted me to learn about um, uh, yoga, Kundalini yoga. And also she was expecting me to speak Punjabi, but I did not learn anything about Punjabi. I, I knew like basic, you know, hello, how are you? But then when she found out that I did not speak Punjabi, I barely spoke English, didn't have like enough of an education to know like biology, math, history, 
And then on top of that, you know, I wasn't certified to be a Kundalini yoga teacher. She was like, what the heck? <laughs> so what did you go to school for if you didn't get any of these things that they like kind of advertised? And you know, they so those were, they, were the main kind of bullet them. points. Those were like the main marketing bullet points for why to send and, and here your mom. Let's again recontext this. Here your mom is a devoted kundalini yoga teacher. She has yeah. gone to solstice consistently for seven years. She's brought her <laughs> yeah. children in front of the master and had him named by the master, dedicated in numerology. She's probably an excellent teacher where she combines numerology with her own, you know, sense of who she is uniquely with her kundalini yoga and this is the formula right it's like give your kids up to the life and here she did and then comes back and realizes well if they don't know Punjabi didn't learn the prayers don't know more about Sikhism don't know English better don't have a very good education and you can't teach kundalini yoga <laughs> your mom's like what a gym yeah, she felt like she got scammed and she's paying, wow. she was paying all this money. Had like, my parents had multiple jobs because they couldn't afford the plane tickets, the school fees, and everything that came along. Um, they have to get multiple jobs, they have to borrow money. They have, they literally put all the resources just to send me and my sister. And then once we came back, they were like, you, you didn't learn anything. And you were there for three years, which means they didn't see you for those three years? Um, I was able to go visit um, in the summertime, but it was for like a month, Got a month it. or two. Got it. And then I would go back. So when your mom discovered, had you guys come back and realized you didn't learn what you needed to learn, did she do anything or was she just mad and carried on? Like, did she say anything, speak out? What, what happened? Um she she was very mad i mean till this day she's still mad <laughs> but i i'm not part of or I, I guess i didn't learn much um but she didn't i mean she tried to complain to the school about the way that they were handling things um for many reasons um especially there was one time that um me and my sister got lost in india uh, and this was during my first year. Um, my my staff member left us in a store, and then um, all the whole group left. And this was my first year in India. And I, I again, I did not speak English. I was with my sister. We were 11, 12 years old. And, and my staff, staff member, member leaves you in a store. She left me in a store, and they left with the other group. She didn't realize that we were not there so then we were lost in the street for a good hour half an hour around that time um and then my mother didn't find out until the weekend when i was allowed to talk to her because we were only allowed to talk to our parents during the weekend and my mom flipped out because she's like why you lost her in the middle of nowhere in a foreign country <laughs> at a 11 years old and she tried there were various times when she tried to complain to school about how they were handling things and the school just kept saying you know it's okay we'll take care of it like don't worry about it we're doing something like in regards to that um another time my when my sister got expelled um 
she had to fly back to Mexico and one of her uh, staff members lost her visa to come back. So she was stranded in England for uh, two weeks by herself. My mother was freaking out because you know she's in England. She's, uh, I think she was 13 years old or 14. She doesn't know anyone. And, she, and the school didn't help her to find someone so that she could stay with. My mom had to do it by herself. But if it wasn't because of my mom and my parents, um, my sister would have been lost in England with no papers. Um, because the staff and again, didn't just apply her papers to her properly. Yeah. So she, she lost, she completely lost the paperwork. And oh, they, they, they were like, oh, you know, like everything will be okay. It was always like that. Like, you know, we're handling things, nothing to worry about. Um, but it was lie after lie. Who um, is the staff? And my mom like, who had, is the staff? Had... Like, who are these staff people? <laughs> I, that's what I want to know. Um, like, who? Yeah, it's, uh, I believe her name is Kari Artsy. Um, and she was the one who both lost us in the streets of India and also lost my sister Gita. Um, Kari Artsy? Yeah. Hari Artsy, Hari Artsy is her name. Hari Artsy Car. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she was a, a, a staff member at MPA. She was a staff member. But I, I think it was her first year um, of working there. And Who's her supervisor? And I, I can't remember any more names after that. But um, when I was there, Jagat was there too. Um, what was his so position believe, at the time you were there? He was um, the head, um, the head of like she would, he would make most decisions about the school. See, yeah, I want to <laughs> clarify. You know, this isn't. I'm going to just pause us for a second and just clarify from um, our last episode where I spoke to uh, Jagat Guru being the the head of the school or whatever. Um, and I, I I did hear from some people that kind of clarified. Um, that there have been other heads over the years. So regardless of kind of who you thought was the head, there have been different people in different positions that were official principals and whatever. But one of the things that came to my attention was that Jagat Guru's position title was actually spiritual life director. And so while there were other people in these positions ahead of him, he was spiritual life director. And then at whatever point, you know, he became principal um, and then now I don't think he's in that position of principle, but he is marketing himself as a spiritual mentor in Kundalini yoga and in spiritual Sikhism life. And I really want us to really hear kind of that rebranding stuff going on here, because what Rue is painting us so well is that there was a, a an ethos of leadership that was non-existent that basically just kind of left, you know, young non-white people you know indigenous and and any other culture that was non-white you know to the to the wolves and also the women the misogyny that's built in so the misogyny and the racism the, the xenophobia the homophobia but if you're the spiritual life director and then you're the principal and whatever title you give yourself these behaviors are just not okay these leadership positions and 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 
and ways of, of, of positioning and posturing leadership and mentoring. It's added, it's added, you know, gut punch to look at Midi Pity right now as marketing itself as an institution of spiritual development and spiritual being. And I, I'm wondering how that feels to you to see that even now, knowing your experience. <laughs> I mean, I don't 100% agree with it. Um, I, I wanted to be close. Uh, my mom wants to school close. My sister wants to school close. Um, we haven't experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of um, hurt. Um, I I have like multiple stories of things that happen in school that are just completely inappropriate. Um, I'm always you know questioning you know where were the adults. What were they doing? Why why did these things happen um, without the supervision? Um, and at the same time, you know, it's it, a lot of um, the things that we did there. Um, you can say that it was very uh, militaristic style. Um, the way that we were being punished, the way that um, our schedules were structured. Um, the activities that we had to do, um, it seemed like a military uh, school. So for a child to go to a school like that, do parents think that's okay? Um, because I, I, I will say so myself, like I, I was not okay in that school. Um, I was not okay waking up at 4 a.m. to do exercise. Um, it was not okay for me to uh, get punished by doing physical activity to the point that I would throw up or I would get sick or I would, some people would faint. Um, it was not okay for me to stand for hours as a form of punishment um, and to have strict rules about what I could do, um, what I, the way that I had to dress in a uniform all the time, no self-expression. Um, the fact that, you know, um, gender roles were very much, um, you had to follow them. You were a female, you had to present as a female, behave as a female. Um, talk talk as a female. Um, you cannot have relationships that went beyond friendship. Um, you weren't allowed to learn about your body. You weren't allowed to even question if you believed in the religion. Because you know now nowadays, like I. I am not religious anymore. I went from being a super religious child because I was brought up in that environment and I was used to it. But now that I have a choice to not be that and to not follow that, you know, I um, I identify as an atheist because I just, I, that was the best for me. It may not be the best for other people and that's okay. Like people are allowed to have religious, but um, 
you know, you aren't allowed to have that choice to question. You aren't allowed to question um, anything. <laughs> it is very much, you do what I say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, rewind that and you'll get the synopsis of what it's like to grow up in 3HO. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's much better to live a life where you can be who you are <laughs> without having other people judging you, telling you what to do, um, controlling every aspect of your life. Um, and, you know, again, some people are, are going to, they feel better with religion, you know, that's up to them. But for me, um, this is, this is who I am. You know, I, I don't, I just don't follow it anymore. I don't believe in God. Um, and that's what makes me happiest. Um, but I, I, I only realized all these things um, after I gave myself a lot of self-love, um, a lot of, you know, time to heal, time to accept and, and really love who I am and, you know, to be okay in my own skin especially in my brown skin (laughs) you know I'm happy to say that you know I I love being Latina I love being a woman yes and yeah I I I have there's nothing wrong with it nothing wrong with who I am Mm -hmm. yeah I mean you're really speaking to the complexity of like growing up in something and not realizing how impactful that something really was in shaping our existence. And then when we kind of wake up to that, we can experience in a whole range of emotions from, you know, sadness and grief to rage, to despair, to just all these layers of ourself that we didn't have access to permission for. Um, And, and, Again, I want you to rewind and listen to kind of what she just last said in this last little run of, of expression, because it was really beautiful. You're talking about the, the, the impact of coercive control and what it really means to grow up in a high controlled group where all aspect of your existence is controlled. And then you add on top of that, growing up in a high controlled group where you are a brown or a black body in that culture, right? And it's, it's, it's it's already a culture that's built in with thick layers of misogyny and non-permission around um you know gender non-conformity but then you add the you know the extreme whiteness and the whitewashing of that spirituality you know it's 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 an added level of sickness folks it's an added level of convolution when you bend spiritual and and consciousness um and use that in exclusive, exclusive, exclusory, exclusory ways. Because um, it dissects the soul. It, there's nothing soul redeeming about it. it. It's fragmenting to our souls. So I, I really hear you. And I thank you for your voice here. Um, 
it's just, you, you bring up just so many layers of the complexity of, of what it means to reclaim yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and even to discover yourself. <clears throat> yeah. To choose yeah, to not sure. to believe, you know, like all these things are just okay. Like everything you said, it's just good, but like, there's just so many aspects when so many parts of ourselves have been controlled for so long and we didn't know there was another way. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that your whole family wants the school to shut it down. So um, I'm going <laughs> to say that out loud. Hashtag shut it down. Shut as it down. <laughs> gives us, as MPA coded silence gives us. And all of you out there that have had experiences at MPA over the decades that haven't had a chance to be able to speak because you got bullied back into silence. Uh, 3HO has a very long history of really excellent bully culture. Um, the hives and the clicks, the haves and the have nots, you know, the elites and the peasants. There are hierarchies in so many ways, but it doesn't can discount, you know, you, you can have economic hierarchy, class hierarchy, and, and racial, racial discrimination is right up in there, even with those class hierarchies. So we need to really understand the context. It's not okay to just be like, oh yeah, I was, I was ostracized too. Well, if you don't have a brown body, you weren't ostracized in the way that we just heard today. And if you didn't have a black body, you weren't ostracized in the, the ways. And, and so it's just a really important thing to let sink in um, because it permeates our whole sense of false identity as pure conscious heart-centered beings kundalini yoga isn't teaching us to do that if it's not dismantling the heart of this level of abuse and it's not it's being used to cover it up it's being used as corporal punishment it's being used as spiritual hierarchy that allows certain people to hold positions called spiritual life directors when they allow decades of abuse. And no, it's not okay. Just because you, he was a, a student of this abusive system doesn't make it okay that he continues to perpetuate this abuse. So when I spoke to that in the last episode, I want everyone to hear it's not okay. This silence culture isn't. The fact that he can hold a position of leadership and be able to inf use influence as a white, cis, male, hetero to influence who is hired in the position of principal. And you think the person in the next principal's position is the person to influence, not Jagat Guru, who's run this sucker for the last decades because he attended it for decades. And all the other people like me who were born and raised in white bodies in 3HO that can automatically get entitled positions into these schools, into these companies because of who our parents are, or our aunts and uncles are, or our associations, and because of our white bodies, right? Ooh, ooh, there's a lot in this one and it's really <laughs> bothersome that this school continues to exist and we perpetuate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. spiritual lingo to let it be okay and people like you and your family and other people that have spoken out get kind of marginalized off to the sides as if it was just your personal experience and not an institutionalized type of abuse mm -hmm. Um, 
this might be totally out of context, but I'm going to ask because I'm ignorant to MPA and ignorant to all these decades of these years. And so I'm just going to invite uh -huh. my own ignorance to be exposed. And if it's not something you can speak to, just say that. Um, but I had heard that there, you know, you had spoken so much about like, where are the adults? Where is the leadership? Who's really making decisions, you know? Uh, and then when you're, you know, when your mom speaks out, obviously it falls on deaf ears, right? So it's, I'm, I'm speaking to other families that probably also might have had issues and spoke up and they kind of got that we're handling it everything's okay response right because you said everything kept getting that response so i had heard that there was actually a death and that the family never got um right communication or even an understanding of what happened to their son and so i'm speaking to that a to find out if you know anything about the context in terms of the years that you were there when that happened but also because you as a child were lost because of an adult not doing their supervision. So all those things for me become connect the dots around, mm -hmm. oh, like imagine if you were a family that had their kid lost or what if you got killed? What would, what would MP have said back to your parents? Well, what did they say back to this family who's, they, from my understanding, the family never got good communication. And so I'm just kind of speaking to that aspect of it. Um, well, I, I don't think I was there when, I, I mean, if it's a student, then I don't think I was there when that happened, but there was definitely, um, a death that happened. Um, I think it was my first or second year. Um, and it was actually a staff member that, um, died inside the, the premise, um, inside a dorm. Um, but we were not allowed to talk about it. Um, when it happened, we were called um, to the center of the school as the entire group. And then they kind of just told us that, you know, some staff member died. And um, if we needed like any, anyone to talk to, then to, to just approach the staff members. But um, I mean, obviously it's, it's private. Um, we I, we weren't allowed to ask questions, but um, I would hear some a lot of people actually that um, it was due to like mental health reasons. But in school, um, mental health was not a thing. <laughs> um, no one had those types of conversations about mental illnesses. Um, you know, anxiety, depression. Um, if you had like any conditions um that it was just not taken seriously or I, I mean it wasn't a real thing um but they I don't remember like there being like a funeral or, or anything like that it was kind of just like it happened and now we're over it even to come together and to be told you can't ask questions seems really strange to me yeah, it's the fact that they were trying to hide it. Um, this, that's really what it seemed like, that they were just trying to hide what happened. And even though we were such a small community, like little group at school, I think it was, what, 100 students um, and maybe like five or six staff members. Um, we weren't allowed to ask questions or get to know more about it. I think, again, only the ones that were friends with the staff members did know. Um, but back then I wasn't frank with them. So I wasn't allowed to know. I just kind of like heard what other people were talking about. And a lot of people were saying that it had to do with mental health issues. Um, 
And where was the staff member from? Everything. Uh, I think he was American. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> got it, got it. Okay. Well, anyways, there um, there was the, uh, it might have been the staff member, and there was just something strange. So even if it was, so there's that incident, but there was some strange incident where the body, I think it was a staff member, the body gets sent back to the family, but he doesn't have his organs. Um, and so the family has spoken Ooh. out. Uh, and I don't know if it was that particular staff member, but the fact that there was somebody who was at MPA and then there's been no actual real line of communication that settled what happened. There was no, you know, so that the, 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 and I am recalling that, it, yeah, it wasn't a student, but it was the staff. So I'm curious if it was this one that you're talking about, because when you're a student attending something like that, you don't even know, right? You're just, these things are just happening around you kind of thing. Exactly. You're, uh-huh. you're giving us a lens of like what it felt like to receive it. Like that was strange. Yeah, it did seem kind of secretive, but you don't necessarily know. And and when I read that over the last couple of years, I was like, what? And then anytime it was spoken to publicly, because I remember I did post something, there was just such bullying behavior. There was these kind of senior white older men that would come into the post and, and, you know, they're like the, the most spiritual highs of, of the people, you know, they're wearing the, the proper turban and like full on kind of guru jugged, uh, jugged guru style, you know, like if you want to have the epitome of what the ideal yoga guru Sikh would look like to come out of MPA, it's kind of like what they're marketing. Right. And anyway, the bullying behavior began. And I just remember thinking it really interesting, like, whoa, that was really intense um, energy to speak to an unknown, an unknown, you know, I called it like I heard there was a murder and somebody came in and says it was a death. It wasn't a murder and whatever the thing was. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. And then at the same time, they would kind of focus again on religion. So they'll be like, oh, let's just pray for him. Yeah. I go right into doing a call and doing other types of meditation. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. The, the spiritual bypass yeah the light washing of it but I just found it really interesting when you just said yeah that you know they they came us together but we weren't allowed to ask any questions and it's like hmm that's very 3HO mm-hmm. let's come together yeah. and yet you can't ask any questions let's come together in consciousness right. and yet nobody let's let nobody say anything mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. it was like that all the time yeah mm-hmm just the gravity of it. And I'm also really reflecting on what it means to be a dedicated yoga student who really kind of has their life changed because you practice Kundalini yoga and you become, you think you're becoming more and more committed to your own spiritual discipline and shedding kind of lifestyle habits of the quote Maya world and choosing something that's a higher path. You attend sadhana, right? You're just, you're doing the teachings quote. And it leads to this path you just described to us. Your children are born in and then you send your children, like your mom wanted quote the best, right? She wanted you to come being a certified yoga teacher and, you know, on a spiritual dedicated path to your own soul. And I can only imagine her dedication. It doesn't mean that the impact on you isn't, you know, real and lasting. And I I hope she continues to unravel her own part in that but I'm speaking to more the institutional abuse of this, of what it means to have these Mm -hmm. yoga students at solstice 
being marketed to send their children to MPA. That stuff blows my mind because when you are practicing as much kundalini yoga as we do when you're in that practice um, or you're doing teacher training and then you're dedicating to going to solstice and you get marketed to that this is the best place to send your children. And I mean, you went year after year. Mm -hmm. You felt a sense of belonging amongst the other kids. So of course it builds in a sense of maybe this is where I need to go because I don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're painting the picture of the institutional abuse folks. Her parents didn't choose this. It's built into a system that's moving people along a continuum of the next logical choice. Just like, did you choose to get your spiritual name or were you group thinked into it? You know, same thing with wearing a turban or any of these choices that we're making for our highest spiritual self. And the lasting impact on our families and on our bodies and on our sense of self and our own self-image as you spoke it out, you know, as you're in your own relationship to God or to not have a relationship to God. Like these things are lasting branches of a, of a fuckery. That's what it is. Yeah. And the school's continuing which is why we're talking about it. I really appreciate these young voices coming forward because I don't relate at all to MBA. I mean, besides the fact that my best friend is married to Jagat Guru, my best friend from when I was a kid, you know, I mean, the webs of relationships are still very clean and clear to me. I, I, I love people and it doesn't mean that they're not involved in hearing on institutional abuse to new young people and new young recruits and new young naive yoga students that think it's best to send their children overseas. And also another point, I wanna add that an interesting note that I got sent to me around MPA was that there's a lot of students coming in from Russia and China these days. And I guess it has a lot to do with the recruiting that's happening through the yoga teacher trainings. And so I want to point out that somebody like a Jagat Guru who's doing, quote, spiritual mentoring throughout Asia or Russia or whatever, and other, other, other types of senior kundalini yoga teachers that mark the, market themselves as, you know, the answer to the Aquarian age and your spiritual development and the answer to your children's spiritual development in a world that's chaotic and yada, yada. You know, this is continuing on around the world, folks. In other countries, because there maybe aren't as many laws once things start to get spoken out about it, about things, there might not be as many repercussions or maybe the ripple effect or the telephone tag of what it's going to take for us to get to Mexico or places in Europe or throughout the world to get them to hear these stories so that the story they're hearing in their teacher training from their latest and greatest yoga guru, hearing the master teacher nostalgia stories of the 70s, Realize that no, we're just repeating in Rue's generation what happened in the 70s and the 80s. You know, it's just, and it's going on. So the more you come forward and tell your story, the more there's a chance that somebody gets to hear it and say, yeah, maybe that's not the best choice for me. Maybe MPA isn't everything they're telling me it is. Let's listen to the stories of the real people who went through it. Mm-hmm. 
it's really heartbreaking to me in a way, you know, to really, to hear the generational trauma that happens in the name of, of spirituality and consciousness and elevated consciousness at that. We all know Kundalini Yoga is marketed as like the fastest way through the subconscious mind and the fastest, you know, the most elite of the elite of the spiritual yoga development. I mean, you know that if you've ever practiced it, because that was what we were taught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the same ostracization and the alien feeling. I know a lot of people can listen to this episode and be like, I felt that alien feeling in the 80s. I thought it got better for people as there was more inclusion in the world. And um, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Which is why I want to point out that just mm. us leaving and us starting to crack our own code and pierce our own veil of illusion doesn't mean that the marketing system of getting students to become Sikhs and getting these students into arranged marriages and getting these students into MBA and getting these students into the Aquarian Academy and getting these students into this marketing machine called become a good Sikh for whatever reason. I don't know, again, why that's the marketing machine, but it's obviously making 3HO some money. Um, so we're just speaking to it because it, it doesn't sound like it's a healthy marketing machine. What more you got for us, Rue? Is there more that you had on your list that you want to make sure you um, speak out loud here while we can? Um, I mean, I, I mean, if anyone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking of sending their students to MPA, my answer is please don't. Um, if you want your child to be traumatized, and may potentially hate you when you're older. Um, <laughs> you can avoid that by not sending your kid all the way to India without your supervision, without your affection, your care, your nurture. Um, I mean, there's only, I, I mean, during the time that I was there, there were only like five, six staff members that I remember. There's no way there's only six people there and they're all going to take care of a hundred students and look after their needs, every child's needs. Um, you know, especially if like your child has um, any like disorders, any illnesses, um, any like behavioral um, issues, things like that. Um, they're not certified to take care of um, children like that. Um, and then again, let's, let's remember that all these kids, most of them are underage. Um, so they don't know what they're doing. They're still learning, they're still growing. They're still developing, developing um, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, so your children need you as parents to grow as fully, fully healthy adults. Um, they can, they should not be apart from you when they need you the most. <laughs> so that, that is my message. Um, and I learned that now 
that um, I've been doing my own my own uh, self healing um, process and journey. And um, you know, I've read lots of books. And I keep reading books and keep watching um, documentaries or just content. Or I, I talk to people and I hear their stories of um, their own trauma and what they went through. And, um, you know, only that way we know um, how to heal. And I think people should just avoid that altogether and have a, you know, healthy way of growing um, a healthy body and mind and soul. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, that's what I, I would love for people to understand. Um, so there's no no more kids being traumatized <laughs> yes yes yeah. your children need you and if you've raised your children in a high demand group mm -hmm. they might tell you they want to go but listen to listen to this person here <laughs> your children need you <laughs> and an institutional abuse mm -hmm. will have you believe that your children can make independent decisions at 8 9 10 11 12 years old the answer is no keep your children by your side yeah um i also want to ask you coming back from india was like 2011 12 obviously school mm -hmm. and you stayed in all that but i am curious what happened within you and and your relationship to the dharma and your parents and what happened to your parents when the whole thing came out in 2020 when all this stuff started to be revealed are your parents paying attention did they not did you just like fill us in to bring <laughs> us here because that's always like a catalyst moment for us to realize like what was actually mm -hmm. going on. So um, my parents are currently separated. Um, my father doesn't follow the religion um, anymore. He cut his hair. Um, he eats meat, follows the regular lifestyle. Um, my mom was the one who told me actually about um, everything that happened with uh, YB and um, because you had left that came out you had left yeah. and just been living your life doing your own thing for a while yeah so basically um i i would say the year after i when i came back from mpa we were still um religious uh we still practiced kind of yoga um, we still prayed and went to the door and things like that um but until we came I think it was when we came to Canada that our lifestyles changed quite a lot. Um, we were a little bit less religious. My mom, on the other hand, um, she still tries to follow the religion. Um, but after she found out about um, everything that was uh, that happened with uh, YB and everything kind of came out, the whole truth came out, um, she started not trusting the community and at least she like accepted the fact that there was something extremely wrong and and thank god she didn't deny it um she was very much like you know that guy is sick there's something wrong with the way that things were handled and and she just completely doesn't agree with that um so she tries to kind of not be part of that community but still um she she still wants to be part of the religion by itself. Uh, so she practiced Sikhism here and there. She still does uh, Kundalini yoga. 
but she just tries to not be part of that community and the whole thing in general. Um, like myself, the 3HO community itself. Exactly. And is that in yeah. Canada? Is she in Canada too? Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you guys moved as a family. Got it. Mm-hmm. So she only goes to Gurdwara, but um, through regular uh, Sikh temples. Um, there's like mm-hmm. a large Indian community in Canada. So um, she kind of just does Sikhism um, and goes to like the Indian um, Gurdwaras. Uh, for me, uh, I, I, I don't, once I moved to Canada, like I stopped altogether um, calling the religion. Um, I went to school and I started um, being interested in other things. And, you know, um, I read books and, and just kind of like associated myself with other people. And uh, I started kind of like um, walking away from <laughs> the culture and the religion and all that. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I did not stay in that or I'm not a religious person in general. Um, I, I believe people can be spiritual. Um, there's still like a little bit of spirituality in me, but um, yeah, no, I just followed a different lifestyle. So. And did your dad mm-hmm. leave? Was, did your dad leave? Was this all after YB <coughs> stuff after 2020 or was this all prior? Um, no, it was prior. I think okay, um, so just after MPA, time. we kind of like, we distanced ourselves from that a little bit. And then it kind of just slowly um, started, I guess, ending. <laughs> okay. And so it was your mom that had first heard about it. And then she comes and tells you and, um, and good on her for, for paying attention. Cause plenty of people decided to stay in denial and keep their heads in the sand um, and use proximity, right. And, and being in another country to be able to uh, justify why mm-hmm. that was happening and why that was okay. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that wasn't the case. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing yourself today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to thank you again for um, bringing your story and your voice and your experience to the podcast. And um, I always like to ask our guests give a song that represents your experience or your your episode want to tell us about your song uh yeah so the song that i chose is called stronger by uh ravina um uh, she is this uh indian queer artist and um the song is about um basically self-love um believing that you're stronger than her abuser. Um, in this case, um, her abuser was a man. Um, I believe it was a partner. And um, basically, it just makes me feel confident about myself that, you know, I'm much stronger, much more beautiful, um, better than the people who hurt me. So yeah, I hope everyone can relate to the song or maybe um, find some self-love while listening to it. So thank you. Thank you. And as always, we don't listen to the whole clip, but let's go ahead and listen to a snippet and you can listen to the uh, podcast playlist. Um, Okay, let's go.
serious i was like that is so beautiful um be sure to listen to the full episode or sorry the full song by clicking the link of the playlist and you can hear the whole song thank you so much for that that was ravina stronger and we've been hearing from rue today and thank you so much for bringing your voice to the podcast this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com or go ahead and click in the link in the show notes. You can also be a guest by emailing me at gn at gurunishan.com and please subscribe and follow um, to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to. It does help if you give us a review. It does um, help us show up a little bit better. And uh, you do that on your, either Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, you can subscribe and follow my inner orbit at gurunishan.com. And once again, I do appreciate you all for listening and um, sharing these stories. Let's continue to break the silence and disrupt the cultural code of conditioning that we got from 3HL. Thanks and talk to you soon. <laughs>